what I do know is that my guy, Uncle Joe, is much better today than he was a week ago. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup, national political strategist and senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC, but perhaps is best known as squirrel enemy number one, Mike Madrid. Good to see you, my friends. We've got lots of numbers today. Happy birthday, Ron. It's great to be with you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, sir. Also returning to the roundup, from the great state of Georgia is Theron Johnson. Theron is a political strategist and consultant who has worked for Atlanta mayors Keisha Lance Bottoms and Kasim Reed, the late Congressman John Lewis, and President Barack Obama. Theron, a big, warm welcome back to you. It's great to see you. Thank you. It's good to be here and happy birthday as well. <laughs> Thanks, man. On this week's roundup, first, new polling showing that more than half of Trump voters think we're heading to a civil war. And we're going to read that through the lens of negative partisanship. Next up, Biden's executive order to cancel $10,000 in student loans for people earning up to $125,000 a year and what the political impact might be. Then we'll discuss the fundraising woes for everyone in the Republican Party who is not named Donald J. Trump. And finally, when we switch tracks over to Politicology Plus, we're going to discuss the closely watched Senate and gubernatorial races in Theron's home state of Georgia. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is where you can get our private ad-free version of the podcast with additional strategy and analysis not available anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll get rolling right after this. On Monday, the Washington Post published a column about a recent YouGov poll showing that 40% of Americans and a majority of Trump voters believed we're headed for a civil war in the next decade. In that same poll, nearly two-thirds of Americans said that the country had become more politically divided and that political violence has increased since the beginning of 2021. Nearly 80% of Republicans said that the country has been more divided in the last 18 months compared to 65% of independents and 59% of Democrats. Republicans are also more likely to think political division will continue to worsen 72% of them compared to 58% of Democrats and independents. Now, the provocative civil war claim, of course, jumped out of the headline as it does every time it comes up. So we did a little digging and found some older polling on the civil war question to put that in context. So in June of 2018, a Rasmussen poll found that 31% of Americans said that a second civil war was likely in the next five years. And in this poll, Democrats were more more likely to fear a civil war. So hopefully we can go another nine months and prove that wrong. Then in 2020, USA Today reported on polling that a majority of Americans believe the country was, quote unquote, on the verge of a civil war, with more of those who strongly agreed with that identifying as very conservative or very liberal, so on the extremes. And then Fast forwarding to shortly after the attack at the Capitol in 2021, a Zogby poll found that 46% of Americans thought we would have a second civil war 
And in that one, the partisan split was relatively even, 49% Republicans, 45% Democrats, and 42% of independents. So, Mike, I want you to lead off here. Uh, I want to know what you make of the movement in these numbers. As we talked about, movement is the key part of interpreting polls. Um, ours are 14 points more likely than Dems to think violence will get worse. That that stood out to me. And also, you know, one of the first things I thought was the question doesn't tell you who they think will be more responsible for the violence. So what are your thoughts on the movement? Well, lots of numbers. It's number season, right? So it's good to, to start uh, sifting through all of this stuff. Um, you, first of all, you're right. It's movement that you're looking for. And the biggest movement and biggest shifts that you're seeing are amongst the parties. And they are really reflective of or representative of uh, the parties that are in power or outside of power. When you look back at Democrats, for example, in 2016, 27, 2018, you see extraordinarily high wrong track numbers, extremely deep concern about the direction of the country. Those mitigate when Democrats are in control of both chambers of the Congress and uh, the presidency. So a lot of this you have to understand is reflective of this fear of having no power, no say, no representative voice in our government. We saw that in 2008 during the early Obama years. 2016 during the early Trump years. We're seeing it now in 2020 in these early Biden years. So it's important to put that in perspective. Now, having said that, these are very concerning numbers because we're not talking about right direction and wrong track. We're talking about civil war. And that's, that is, again, a, a, a term that we started to test really in the Trump era because intensities were starting to grow off the charts. And really what we're seeing is those numbers sit in about a mid-40s, sometimes low-50s range, okay? The Zogby poll, for example, is sitting at about 46 with a strong Republican lean. That's probably the most significant, I think, finding and factor, and if you averaged all of these out, where it probably sits today. This should not necessarily surprise us for a couple of reasons. The first is um, grievance politics. Uh, ends this way. When all you are doing is fueling grievance and providing nothing aspirationally or nothing to stand for, the opposition and anger that you stoke and the fear and the mobilization that you engender will ultimately lead to some sort of violent conflict. Now, I do not believe that this is going to end up look like a bunch of people in red coats and blue coats lining up between you know the borders of Arizona and, you know, Nevada. Um, what I would suggest, and this, this, this may be a little bit alarming, I think we're already in a civil war, okay? The war that we're going to be in or that we are in is going to look like periodic regional outbursts of political, racial, ideological violence. That is already happening, especially in a society that is as armed as we are and that is prepared for as much violence as we are. So many of us are already becoming numb to the rise of a lot of these mass shootings when the profile, the demographic profile of so many of these shooters meet a shockingly similar criteria. That's data we have to look at and say something is already happening. When we have had kidnapping attempts on the governor of Michigan, for example, when we have had a violent insurrection at the United States Capitol, when plots are being unearthed every day by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who is telling us that domestic terrorism in the form of rising 
nat- white nationalism is the number one domestic threat, we have to recognize that we are already in the early stages of what could essentially be defined as a civil war. And I've written on this a little bit, talking about how it's probably going to look a little bit more like the Troubles uh, in Northern Ireland um, you know, during the 70s than it is going to look like the United States between North and South in the 1860s. Uh, still a corrosive, very violent outburst, um, a society that is very sick, violent, and unhealthy, and can't remedy its own challenges. I think it's begun. I think it will be with us for a couple of decades, but I think that it's probably going to meet that criteria and look a lot more like that than our traditional notions of United States Civil War back in the 1860s. Okay, there's a there's a lot to there's a lot to get at there, Theron. I'd love to hear your thoughts on everything that Mike just laid out, and also about the use of the term "civil war" now, and and how it it comes up and it, there's a there's this inflection point of headlines every time we see a poll like this, and then it kind of dies down. Some people say, "Oh, it's so irresponsible to start using that term," um, but what do you make of the way Mike laid out like the different way to think about uh, civil war in America? That the ideas that that brings up. Well, as always, Mike does a fantastic job of not only giving his point of view, but really forcing a lot of our listeners uh, and subscribers to really think beyond sort of the obvious. And, you know, the term civil war in in that era is got a different effect on a lot of different people. Uh, There are people in this country who look at it from, hey, it was a very pivotal time where uh, we had to really, you know, sort of fight for, for freedom. But then there's a lot of people particularly uh, those of us who feel like, you know what, uh, it was a dark, it was a dark time. Um, but I, I would say this, just really looking at this topic and looking at these numbers, you know, there's one of the things that I always try to do, and that is really uh, use the teachings of Congressman John Lewis, the late Congressman John Lewis. He always taught me to try to love people and to try to find the best of people. And so in politics, you do have a, a, a great sense of love. You have a great sense of democracy unity, but there is there there is a level of just sheer hatred now involved in politics. And we've seen it for now over a century, to Mike's point. This is not something that just came up. These numbers are, have been in, sort of evolving. And it used to be that most voters would take the issue with politicians and their positions and most importantly, and most importantly their actions. But now voters are turned against other voters. Uh, identifying with a different party. And that's viewed as a complete, you know, moral failure. And and the view that is going on and is going to continue to drive both parties uh, further apart is really the rhetoric that is really coming out, uh, particularly, I think, on the Republican side. Now, we, you know, we all go to the polls and we think we're casting a vote in the best interest of ourselves, our families, and our community. And as a Democrat, uh, I am confident that my party is the is the only one of the two working for the common good. However, Mike, it, it, I don't I don't blame Republican voters for their votes, right? I don't go out here and declare civil war on them for voting in a way that I may not agree with. And so there's also the media that's involved in this, and and that's why I'm so glad that we're actually talking about this topic because it's so important. And the last thing I'll say is, is that while it, it is left upon us as voters and as people that are trying to live in this democratic sort of process, but also our leaders have a responsibility to restore reason to our national dialogue. And, and frankly, the, the burden lies on both parties. Uh, sometimes my party 
we have a few bad actors who take us a little too far left and they say things that I don't necessarily agree with. But I think that what has really been done is far more, um, you know, sort of a significant that I think that we live in this post-Trump era. You, know, you can really trace a lot of, the, of today's division directly to him and not just to him, but to the people that enable him. And the fact that we are trying to move forward in this country, and I'm at the state in the state of Georgia, which I know we'll talk about later, where it's front and center, um, where the the sort of residue from the Trump era and how he really, I think, proved that some of these numbers that we're seeing and people think they were entering the civil war uh, is largely caused by his behavior and his conduct while he was trying to govern this country as president. Um, so ultimately, I think, look, is it tribal? Yes. It's tribal on both sides. You know, I find a lot of times when I talk to people on a podcast or television, uh, I get criticized criticized from my voters, my party, from not going hard enough against Republicans. And then if I say something uh, that Republicans may not agree with, or I say I, I support something that I voted for, um, then I definitely get the backlash from that as well. So will this change? Maybe. Uh, are we in a very tribal and divisive state of this country? Yes. Uh, can we depend on our leaders to solve it by themselves? No. Um, so what we got to do is is that actually do more listening to the other side, try to find some reasoning. But ultimately, I just think this term that we're going towards a civil war is really strong, is scary, and it's something that more people need to be talking about than others on this podcast. Theron, you know, we mentioned Trump, and one of the first things I think of about the increasing rhetoric is how he did this very effective rhetorical uh, uh, sort of manipulation of the idea of an enemy. We're used to hearing rhetoric about enemies outside the United States, enemies who, foreign adversaries who want to harm Americans. But what Trump did so effectively, and this was really uh, stark in that uh, that big lie grievance rally he had sometime in 2021 in a field between Huntsville and Birmingham, where, and I talked about this at the time, he spent the entire time basically drawing, you know, digging this trench in the sand between us and them. But the them was the enemy within and the enemy was Democrats. It was, and he used terms like enemy, and they're destroying the country from within. They want to destroy America from within. And so that, when I think of civil war, I think of bringing, bringing the idea of the enemy into our borders and, and defining the enemy as people who live here, as our fellow Americans. And so to your point of, of, of adding people to the coalition, right? If, if, if politics is a game of addition and, uh, and, and we know that you have to grow the coalition to win. How do you do that uh, when the negative views of members of the other party have grown so much, when negative, when, when negative partisanship seems to be driving everything? How do you get back to, um, as you put it, trying to love people in politics when there's so much hatred? I think it's a process. I mean, I think, again, it starts with our leaders who we elect. Uh, and, and, and look, you're right, Ron. I mean, look, what Donald Trump did in 2000, really it started in 2015, if you really look at it, maybe even 14. Um, but he sort of conveyed this us versus them sort of mentality. And the, the, even though he didn't clearly define who the us was, 
Um, but you kind of knew if you supported him who the them was, right? You knew you you had an idea who he was referring to. And he you gotta give him some credit. I mean, he did kind of capture um a lot of people who felt like the country was heading in a different direction that didn't necessarily represent them. And he said things that a lot of them probably said privately. Um, but I think going back to this whole notion that, you know, we're turning against each other. I believe the greatest country in the world, a country that our world allies look up to to try to be. But, you know, we we have these things that really threaten our democracy, like this hatred, like turning people against each other. And, and a lot of time, I think the, the basis of it is not just race, but I think it's also class. And it's a it's a denial of our history. Because I talk to so many people who want to only cherry pick certain parts of American history. They don't want to talk about the dark parts. And then I just think this whole thing about civil war and turning a two-party system and people who choose to vote and choose to support certain people, making them out to be the enemy, making them out to be not one of us, that's got to stop. But the truth of the matter is, is that I think I'm hearing from more and more people, not just in Georgia, but but I'm trying to figure out how do we make people understand that your vote does count. And even though you may be frowned upon, you may be criticized for voting and, and, and have an ideology that may not necessarily be aligned with your enemy, that you participating in the process and not feeding into this tribalism uh, is the right thing to do. And, you know, I think I think we're going to have to do that work when elections are not occurring. So what are we doing in 2023 before the 2024 uh, presidential election? You can't wait to try to change people's perspective, um, their thought process, and how they feel in an election year. It's got to be done off election years. All right, last week... President Biden announced his student loan relief plan that will cancel $10,000 in student loan debt for people earning up to $125,000 a year or $250,000 a year for married couples and up to $20,000 for debt cancellation for Pell Grant recipients. Now, uh, earlier this week, I had a detailed conversation on the policy uh, with our good friend and champion of democratic social policy, Lene Erickson at Third Way, and that dropped on the feed on Wednesday. A lot of pundits have talked about the student loan forgiveness plan as a way to increase voter turnout heading into the midterms, especially younger voters. Uh, according to a May NBC poll, 46% of registered voters said they'd be more likely to vote for a candidate who supports canceling, canceling at least some student loan debt versus 25% who said they'd be less likely to vote for that candidate. Uh, voters 18 to 34 do favor canceling some or all student debt for all for all borrowers. Um, uh, 80, 81% of those with debt and 66% of those without debt support. Uh, 56% of Republicans and 66% of independents and 84% of Democrats under 34 uh, support canceling all or some student debt for every borrower, borrower in a May uh, Data for Progress poll. Now, Lene made a point that popular opinion in polls doesn't always translate to turnout. She's right. In the Harvard Youth Poll that came out this spring, 85% of 18 to 29-year-olds favored some form of government action on student loan debt, but only 38% favored total debt cancellation. 
Uh, and as Lene pointed out, they didn't say that student loan debt was their most important issue by far, by far and away, as with almost every other, probably every other uh, demographic or cohort you measure, they pointed at the economy. So um, Theron, first, how big of a motivating factor do you think student loan debt cancellation will actually be in November? Do you think it's going to work out for or against Democrats? Ron, I think it's going to be a game changer. Uh, I think it's going to be a game changer in the sense that you're going to see a demographic that is so important to the winning coalition for Democrats nationally and statewide races. Because when we talk about how Democrats won in 2020 and how we won in 2022, um, young people um, play a very, very key role in that. And I just want to say this. I think that we also got to acknowledge that President Biden, this was a campaign promise that he delivered on. He campaigned saying that, hey, I want to make sure that I can look at ways to eliminate student loan debt. And I don't know about you guys, but when I talk to young voters 25 years and younger, there's three things they talk to me about, Ron. You're exactly right. They want to be able to have a good paying job and they want to actually be able to stay at home and do it virtually. They want to have the flexibility and the freedom to maybe go into an office sometimes and maybe not. The second thing that they talk about is they want to decriminalize marijuana. Right. That is something that is a national movement. And, you know, and I think even those who may not choose to uh, smoke marijuana it still feels like we should decriminalize it. And then the third one, you guessed it, student loan forgiveness. Now, personal story real quick. I am a graduate of Clark Atlanta University, which I believe is the best historically black college or university in the world. And I would not have been able to matriculate and graduate from this wonderful institution had it not been for my ability to utilize Pell Grants. But it also was my decision, Ron and Mike, to take out a student loan, which with the pretense of understanding that I would have to pay this loan back one day. But when I got into my senior year at Clarkland University, I needed a little bit more money. So I, then I had to call on my mom, who's a single parent who raised me by herself, and say, Mom, can you take out a Parent PLUS loan? So we knew that when we took out these loans, all right, one day I was going to have to work and figure out a way, have a career to pay back these loans. Now, it took me until 2019. I graduated in 2000. It took me 19 years to finally wake up one day and say, you know what? I've been blessed. I can actually make enough money where I can call my mom and I can say, hey, you know, we're going to pay back that loan. We're going to pay back those four loans that we took out, three on my own, one with her. Now, it took me 19 years to do it. Now, you got some people who just graduated from college, 18, 19, because they're graduating earlier these, these days, but 21, 22, 23-year-olds who probably didn't take out as much uh, loan debt as I did. But the fact that they're now going to be able to get that balance sort of pretty much forgave, forgiven um, is, is a game changer because I shouldn't criticize you know, young people for basically being able to have this opportunity now that was not afforded to me. But isn't that really the American dream is to make sure that we do things, we make decisions to really pave the way for those who are coming behind us. And so I'm kind of going on sort of a non, because I think the young lady you talked about, talked about the policy of impact of this. I really wanted to personalize it, but to really bring some humanization to it. Lastly, I'll say this. I just think that if student loan forgiveness is not going, to, it's not going to turn any Democratic voters into a non-Democratic voter. So if you were going to vote for Democrats and you were going to vote for them anyway, based on this decision and the same for any left leaning independents, I think if you're independent and you have planned to vote Democrat in this 
come in November, you're probably more likely going to vote Democrat. However, it could bolster the youth turnout in the midterms that we need in a constituency which will be critical to holding down the House and the Senate uh, beyond just some of the governor's races and other races that we have. So if we can cultivate the passion, um, if we can make it make sense to young people that this is something that the president delivered on and it's going to help you be able to go out and be a productive citizen in the country and harness that enthusiasm, then I think ultimately, yes, it will awaken a very key part of a winning coalition for Democrats. Okay, Mike, over to you on this. The uh, as uh, as as Theron mentioned, the po- the discussion with Lene uh, on Wednesday was focused on the policy more than anything else. And uh, Third Way, she's she Lene's a SVP at Third Way. The takeaway there was that it is as a policy matter regressive, inflationary, um, has a very dubious legal future because of the process by which it was enacted. Um, there's a, there's a question about whether the, the president even has the authority to do this with a stroke of a pen, half a trillion dollars. Um, but she also pointed out that this was trying to solve a problem politically for Democrats that had already been solved. She saw abortion as a motivating factor for democratic voters and pointed to, to democratic performance in special elections. We've had four actually since the Dobbs decision, and we should have Alaska pretty soon. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, in New York special elections, Democrats picked up about five points over 2020 in the New York 23rd, which is almost that entire shift came from Tompkins County, which is home to Cornell University. Um, Pat Ryan narrowly won the special election in New York uh, 19th because of the higher turnout in the white college-dominated Ulster County. Um, and then since the Dobbs decision, Democrats you know, writ large have overperformed Biden's 2020 results in, in all these special elections. So what are you, what's your takeaway on the on the on the turnout piece, I suppose, and what you think, you know, agree, disagree with Theron's take that's going to be a game changer or was the problem already solved with the with the fallout from Dobbs uh, or something else entirely? Well, I think there's a there's some elements of of agreement with with all of these threads, um, especially Lene's. And I, I did listen to that discussion. I thought it was fascinating. Um, look, I think the game changed in June. I, the Dobbs changed the game. I mean, so the, the, those numbers have already moved. H- having said that, there's no reason not to double down on it and make sure that it stays there and it continues. Uh, I do not believe this is a prime mover for young people. That doesn't mean that it's not important. I made the mistake of asking the question as to, or making the statement rather, that this was a political move more than a policy move. And it's like people were just, you know, were attacking me, saying, "How dare you!" It's like I'm not even opposed to the <laughs> oh, policy. Yeah. Do not try talking about this on Twitter. No good can come from that. Oh, oh, it is, it is, this of all the bad debates on Twitter, this is absolutely the worst one. And I'm kind of afraid to wade into this now because nobody wants to have a rational no. discussion about this. No. Okay, I mean, no, nobody. And I'll, I, what I will say is this: I'm not a policy expert. I borrowed my way through college. I'm helping my kids borrow their way through college. It is an incredibly long-term burden. Having said that, and again, I am not a policy expert. It seems to me if there's going to be $10,000 given, uh, young people with college degrees are the last people you want to give it to because they're the ones that are most likely to have the time horizon and the skill set and the earning potential to actually pay it back. So let, now I'm going to duck get all the rocks <laughs> and bottles being thrown at me right now. By saying, I would rather just give it to, to uh, you know a mother, single mother with two kids that are hungry and start and or pay off their payday loan or pay three months worth of rent. Like that's to me has a greater impact. 
but I'm not here. I'm not here to talk about the policy. <laughs> this when, when this was first announced, this made really clear, obvious sense to me that this is a political drill. Yeah. The real look, Joe Biden has a really, really big problem, huge enthusiasm problem with young college educated voters of all races, of all class, of of all backgrounds. It's so bad that when his numbers were pulled, the only group that was worse were Republicans. That's how bad Biden's numbers were and are. Well, they're much better now with young people, okay, when this policy was being cooked. That was when they were cooking it is when they realized we got to have something to get our base back. I think by the time they cooked it, the Dobbs decision had come out. The earthquake had happened. The game had changed. And they're like, we've got this policy anyway. Might as well throw it in. <laughs> and they're right. They're, they're absolutely right. Why not? Put it in there. Yeah. And here's why. Here's the thread that will bring it all back together. I don't think this is legal. And I'm not a lawyer either. <laughs> Neither does Nancy Pelosi. But, so you're in good company, Mike. Right. Okay. Okay. But And here's where I think Lene is right. But I want to take her thinking one step further. If if people who have already counted this money in their own mind don't get it because the Republicans don't get put up the vote, it's going to be a hell of a good motivator, oh, right? Yeah. Like that's the best scenario for the Democrats. Yeah. It's going to be like, wait a second. Yeah. I, the Democrats just gave me 10 grand and the Republicans took it back. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. If I vote for the Democrats, I'm going to get 10 grand. <laughs> like that's the scenario that's being set up. Yeah. And that, you know, now that, that's motivation. Yeah. But you add that on top of what we are already seeing with the turnout model dramatically skewing, and some of these polls are now waiting, um, W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, waiting towards a younger, more female demographic. It's why you're going to start seeing the generic ballot moving towards a plus D position, and Democrats start to do better as we start to head into the last 69, 70 days of this race, is the the, the June, July August numbers are are in. Mm. We are seeing real hard data in terms of turnout. It is motivating women like nothing we have seen in the past 30, 40 years. The um, adjustments are being made in the polling, and you are going to see that continue uh, to peak as we start to move uh, into the final stretch of the election. So uh, this on itself is not a motivator. This with, with gravy on top yeah. is absolutely... Um, something you have to pay really, really close attention to. Okay. Uh, last very quick question. Are there any hazards uh, of applying too much information from special elections to general elections? Are there any caveats there? Uh, I think uh, you got to really, again, you got to look at the, the, the atmosphere and you got to look at the turnout model, right? And so most special elections, you get your very in tune, very sort of educated um, voters who are really, for some whatever reason, actually going to come out and vote versus, you know, general election or primary. I mean, it's, it's just a different type of universe. Um, but, but where you're going here, Ron, is that, look, I tell people all the time, you got to take it race by race. You know, if I look at all the races I've worked on from a presidential race uh, to focusing on 12 you know, states and three battleground states out of those 12 states, you know, local mayoral races, governor's races, congressional races, you know, every race is different. But the one thing that I, I agree with with Mike, and he did a really good job of uh, sort of agreeing with me, but not agreeing, but definitely, you know, uh, sort of saying, hey, uh, I'm not a lawyer, not a policy guy, but this is what I think. And this is why, you know, we're good at what we do um, is that, look, who knows where the electric is going to be in November? What I do know 
is that my guy, Uncle Joe, is much better today than he was a week ago, uh, a month ago. When I'm talking to pollsters and they're saying, hey, we're polling him in key battleground states that are going to be very key in 2024, he's gaining a point a month. And so will he be at maybe 50, high 50s? Probably not, hopefully, but mid 50s, probably not. But if we can get him in the 40s, 45, and eliminate a little bit of that headwind, then I can sort of give you a better sort of sense of what the electric is going to look like. But I think that's one of the things that people make a mistake. You got to look at the voter trends, look at the voter turnout models. And most times you can't compare them to general elections versus special elections. But I will tell you this. Back to the student loan debt, and, and Mike is right. I think this enables congressional members, U.S. Senate candidates, to go back, especially if you have higher education institution, uh, you know, higher education institutions in your district, and you can say, "Hey, I support the president. We're trying to give you ten thousand dollars. So when you graduate, or since you've graduated, we can eliminate and reduce that student loan debt." Because most people, and it's been twenty years since I graduated from college, but I do remember vividly, Ron calling the student loan office and saying, hey, can I first and foremost negotiate a consolidated interest rate? And then if there was times for me to defer because I wasn't working or hardship, I did that. But once all that is over, you get into the groove and getting that stable job. I think that helped me buy a little time. And I think so we, we can't just look at this as recent graduates. There are people in their 30s and, 50, and 30, you know, 35. And then to Mike's point about giving that to the single mom with the two kids, I agree with that. No, no, no pushback from me on that. But I think there's 35 year olds who are just now figuring out what the hell they're going to do with their life, and has got all this debt that they've been incurring. And I think that if they if they qualify, they may or may not. Um, but if they qualify and they can just put a dent in it, not not necessarily forgive the entire amount, but put a dent in the amount that's owed. Um, that's what I mean. It's game changer. And then lastly, the lawyers and the and the doctors. My wife is a a dermatologist who, and she's probably going to kill me for saying this on this national podcast, but probably still is paying student loan debt. And we are the mother of a great son and she's in her 40s. Um, you know, I think she has kind of mixed reviews on it, but because she wants, she, you know, she wants a little bit of that money too, but I don't think she qualifies and it doesn't really put a big dent in what she owes. But again, I think she looks back and she says, wow, I remember being there. I remember being fresh out of school and I appreciate what President Biden did for these young people. And I think that's the relatability that Democrats have got to really be proud and to support. And whether it's legal or not, whether it's something that everyone is going to agree with, maybe not. But ultimately, if you can bring a level of humanization to it and talk about leveling the playing field and helping people ultimately be the best version of themselves, I think that's something that Uncle Joe can talk a lot about. Yep. I want to bookmark the uh, backlash because I think we're going to be returning to this conversation when, uh, w- when that happens. I think that's a definitely a good look ahead. Okay. Let's talk about money. This week, Tim Miller at The Bulwark wrote a piece about the vast fundraising discrepancy between Republicans and Democrats running this cycle. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, pulling their TV buys from Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Wisconsin. That might have something to do with the fact that in July, Senate Democrats had $31 million more cash on hand than Republicans. House Dems had raised $24 million more than Republicans. And the DNC had narrowed the massive fundraising advantage that the RNC had. Starting off the election cycle, the NRSC had 
uh, record fundraising numbers, more than $173 million. Uh, but by the end of June, June, they had burned through all of that, save $28 million. And at that point, they had spent only $23 million on ads, $21 million on text messaging, over $12 million on Amex payments. And as we all know, because of uh, the way disclosure rules work, what those payments were actually for uh, is opaque and will remain opaque. Uh, at least $13 million on consultants, $9 million on debt payments, and $8 million on renting mailing lists. One Republican consultant working on the Senate races told the Washington Post that, quote, if they were a corporation, the CEO would be fired or investigated. <laughs> and, and that person called for an audit and said it was a ripoff. Some Republican consultants have pointed to excuses like inflation, changes to Facebook's ad policies, spam filters, complacency with an anticipated Republican wave. Uh, Ronald McDaniel pointed to the Dobbs decision overturning a row, creating an enthusiasm gap that's been hard to overcome, and that small-dollar Republican donors have been decimated by the Biden economy. But there is just one big human-sized Cheeto-colored wrinkle in that argument, which is Trump's Save America PAC has raised over $103 million between the January 6th insurrection and July of this year. His MAGA PAC has pulled in another $16 million, and that's before the Mar-a-Lago raid that Trump's team has been boasting about generating another million dollars a day in donations. So for you, for, if you're doing the math at home here, uh, Trump's PACs have brought in about $125 million, which is well more than enough to wipe out the Democrats' fundraising advantages. But his PACs have spent twice as much on his own legal problems and expenses than on funding Republican candidates. So you know, much of the conversation during the primary cycle is on Trump's sway over the Republican base. We're still talking about it. What's his win-loss record on his endorsements? Uh, you know, and how how important have they been? But looking at the looking at the money here, uh, at the staggering fundraising difference, um, it seems to me like the biggest influence Trump has over over the party is fundraising. Um, Mike, what do you think? I think that's exactly right, and it's. I, I, I'm glad that you you added up kind of the difference between uh, the NRSC's take, the RNC's take, and then Trump's money. If you add that all up, it's pretty much they're not terribly far off from where the Democrats are at. To me, in my mind, uh, again, money is oftentimes we use it as a measure of enthusiasm and where people are at. If you look at it that way, I think um, the, the, the 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 party is you know arguably not in as bad a shape as it would otherwise suggest. But cash is cash, right? And if these guys are pulling ad buys, what does that mean? Well, on its face, it looks horrible for the Republicans. But let me also say this. I've been doing this a little while. I've never seen a campaign that was competitive not get the money that it needed. Oz can finance the, his own campaign himself. If I was the NRSC mm -hmm. and I started to hit a cash crunch, yep. the first place I would pull money out of is Pennsylvania and say, fund it your damn self. Absolutely. You're not going to let yourself go down, right? So, uh, so so, that's part of it. And then you've got to look at, at uh, Arizona, which is a Peter Thiel candidate. And there's this kind of chicken uh, game of chicken that's going on with Peter Thiel and and, um, and and the candidates in Arizona and the candidates in Ohio, right? People that he put up, J.D. Vance. And saying, well, let's pull money out of there because Peter Thiel's the one who kind of put them up, got them through the primary. This guy's got more money than God himself. So let him kind of finance these campaigns. So there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. And it, it, but what we do know is this. 
a lot more money than ever needed to be from Republicans where whatever buckets it's gone on to has been wasted on Donald Trump's legal fees. It, uh, tens of millions of dollars just gone. Now, can that money be replaced? Yeah, probably. And, and it will probably come from a handful of, of our own American oligarchs that are going to try to fund these races and you know, push their, their pet you know, senators through. But there's also there's a little bit of a danger in, in suggesting like oh the Republicans are broke like they're out of money and they're you know this is these campaigns aren't going to be fully funded. I, I wouldn't go that far. I, I mean it's not it's certainly not good news for the Republicans, but I've yet to see a campaign that needed the money to get over the top not get the money in 30 years of doing this. There's just too many donors that would step in and fill up that those buckets if need be. Um, it does, and again, I'll end with this. When you do pull your rates, this is a little bit inside the you know inside baseball. But when you pull, the reason why you reserve time early is you get lower rates, and time is is finite. Once once that time is sold, you can't can't get buy it back. any more of it. Not at the same it's rate. Gone. No, and if you want well, it back, it's, it's way not, more expensive. If it's even available. Right. Right. When, when somebody buys that ad, it's like, no, that's McDonald's ad. Yeah. You can't have that time. <laughs> like they're there. They bought the ad and we're not going to bump their ad like they're paid for it. So that's the danger. That's why you reserve that money early. You got to put some cash up to hold that position. And then you got cash calls to make uh, as, the, as the time nears. That's the real danger. It's not that they're not going to have that money. It's just w- when they do finally get the resources and they probably will, there may not be enough places to spend it. That's a big problem that people realize don't realize the campaigns that we have. Sometimes when the, when your campaign gets flooded late, there's literally nowhere to spend the money on. Like there's no more TV time available. There's no more radio time available. The mail can't get there in time. All the billboards are sold. What do we do with all this money? And usually we dump it in phones or whatever you can because that's all you can do. But that that becomes a problem and it's not a good place to be for Republicans. Uh, I, I don't want to read too much into it because there's, I'm sure, a million things going on behind the scenes that we don't know. But at the moment, um, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a measure of enthusiasm, and you have to look at all the buckets. Theron, in this cycle, the majority of fundraising for both Republicans and Democrats has come from individual donors. Uh, two-thirds of all donations to Republicans and about 85% of donations to Democrats. So one of the things, you know, as a as a guy who spent a long time doing grassroots fundraising, internet fundraising, um, to me, the, as I mentioned earlier, the thing that stands out to me about Trump's grip over the Republican Party has a lot less to do with the donor class and with influencers, influencing influencers, and it has a lot more to do with what he has done to the minds of the Republican grassroots donor base. They are now conditioned, and and by the way, when you see people distancing themselves from Trump or you know people who've received endorsements wiping his name off of their website however not saying anything against him none of them will say a bad word against him in fact one we had one quote last week one of the uh one republican lawmaker was like i never say his name ever um they know they can't raise grassroots money which is where most of it comes from now uh without him Without using his name, without defending him, and everybody's read the emails, you, you've seen the fiery rhetoric, the more extreme you can be, the more people open the email, the more people click, the more people give. This is, how, this is, this is the beast that exists now on, 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 both, uh, on both of the machines, Democrats and Republicans. So I'm just curious about your thoughts on this phenomenon 
which which is sort of the days of you know wealthy donors making max out contributions to political candidates um, are, and, and having a lot of say and influence over those candidates. Then once they get elected, they're kind of coming to an end in an era where most of the money now comes from small dollar givers who are motivated by extremely fiery rhetoric. And the way Trump has manipulated that base, the way he's changed the dynamic means um, like he, he's got them in a, in just in a, in a, you know, in a headlock. So um, how do you see the difference between those two things, uh, between between the grassroots fundraising influencing Republican politics and grassroots money on the left? This is the thing. And you hit on something that's very important. Um, for so long, you had in both parties uh, roughly hundreds of very wealthy donors um, across the country. And if you can break it down by the region, but it was really always those recycled donors. They would always give humongous checks. Um, they would always sponsor the inaugural events. Um, they would always, you know, sort of give unlimited money to different packs and, and they would have all the influence. And you sort of saw this evolution of um, the sort of fundraising dollars on the grassroots level. And the person that I know that really sort of started, and I'm probably gonna get in trouble for this because I'm sure somebody before him did it well, uh, but you really look at how Howard Dean, uh, when he ran unsuccessfully for president, and then he went from that unsuccessful run and then went over to the DNC. I mean, that's where we saw it on the left. But what Trump is doing right now on the right run is really fascinating because he's not only, as uh, Mike pointed out, using all his money uh, to uh, pay his legal bills. And, and I believe begin the process of funding his next campaign for president. Um, but he's he's got a sort of a grip. He's really has a chain on the grassroots donors that basically who he kind of directs uh, who they should and who they should not support. And that is something that is very dangerous because Trump is getting it, you know, sort of, sort of from th- three different ways. He's getting the, 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 poor, the party loyalists who are afraid of him. So you give him money because you don't want him to, you know, sort of, hit your candidate or talk bad about your candidate. And then he's also getting money from people who have always supported him and still support him and they kind of hedge, but then he's controlling the grassroots money. And so if you are a Republican right now running for office, you have to ask yourself, you know, does, does Donald Trump really care about helping me if I'm on a ballot this year? And I think that he's cherry picking and picking certain candidates who he wants to help. Um, and then to think if you if you are a party right now that's pretty much chained to him, and we saw what happened with people like Liz Cheney uh, most recently, where if you don't support him or you go against him, not only will he support your opponent, I mean he will basically turn almost the entire party against you. And so this is a complicated issue um, for Republicans to figure out, like how do you move on from a very polarizing uh, overall negative. Uh, person amongst the electric, but is still the most popular Republican within the party. Uh, polling shows me week after week that Donald Trump right now in a, in a lot of states are is, is still the most popular nationally recognized Republican within the party. But I, I do think that the 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 inability for Republicans to say, okay, how does this money, given money, you know, one hundred and three million dollars plus to a Save America PAC that, quite frankly, is hasn't really shown that it's trying to really advance the agenda of the Republican Party is, is the best investment of your money and your time. 
Um, but what Trump is really, really good at is that he wants to keep a stronghold and a strong lock on the narrative. And it goes back to what I said earlier. It's like, again, it's us versus them. And if you're establishment or you don't support him or if you went against him and, again, to bring it home here to Georgia, we saw that where he went after Raffensperger really aggressive, our secretary of state. He went after Governor Kemp pretty aggressively, right? Uh, and those two individuals defeated his supported candidates. But they are still, right now, to this day, very, very careful about what they say or what they may sort of infer about this president because of what you just said, Rhonda. It would dry up their fundraising dollars. Um, they will, they, they're out of the primary, so don't have to worry about that. Um, but they would have to really sort of deal with a very motivated group of people uh, who are not only giving their dollars, but they're promoting this false narrative uh, that this president has really spent a lot of time doing. So the last thing I would say is this on the left, um, you look at people like, you know, these gubernatorial candidates and U.S. Senate candidates. I mean, you know, just we won't talk about him too much today, but, you know, Senator Raphael Warnock has really tapped into a national grassroots movement. I mean, Stacey Abrams is at the top when you talk about national grassroots fundraising. And so um, I still believe that Democrats, we still know how to do it better than anyone. Um, but what Trump is doing with this, this hearing you sort of talk about those numbers and how it's not being really spent um, to help, you know, elect more Republicans and how Republicans are having a challenge raising money in this sort of Trump era or this post-president Trump era um, with him sort of, you know, still having a stronghold on on the narrative and, and the fundraising um, is something that uh, Republicans, I'm sure, are, are very concerned about. But but Democrats, we better been be very, very mindful um, that we got to continue to look at different ways of how to raise money because the grassroots movement can change at any moment. If, if, the, if the donors in the grassroots feel like you're not supporting their cause or you've decided to go towards the middle or go away from the issues that they care about, you better have a, a sort of a, a plan in place to really go out and find additional donors to sustain the fundraising goals that you have. Yeah, I mean the the one big difference I see between the left and the right on this is, you know, on the right, grassroots money is now controlled by a singular personality with a cult, and on the left, you just don't have that. It's a lot more distributed. And uh, yeah, go ahead, Mike. I think I think I think one of the reasons that's exactly right, right? But like, look at Marjorie Taylor Greene raises millions of dollars. She doesn't go to the establishment for that. She raises it in five, ten, fifteen dollars a month, you know, payments from the MAGA crazies that are out there all over the country, right? So she's not beholden to Kevin McCarthy for her for, for her vote for speaker or for any policy vote that she can take. And she's not afraid of losing office by being by by by, by the money spigot being shut off. But what's really defining the left is their unity in being against the Republican Party right now. And that is allowing, I think, for some greater discipline. If the Democrats do lose the majority, I think that splinters. I think that that starts to break off. And I think you start to see a little bit more performative politics the way you do on the right start happening on the left as they start to start exercising greater power to saying we need a speaker that is much more progressive than we have had in the past. I think that that's probably the dynamic that you're going to end up seeing. I think that will be interesting to watch. Now that we are up to speed on a few of the big stories moving this week, let's turn to what you are watching. Mike, what do you got? 
I'm watching the Latino vote shocking to everybody out there. And the reason why is because it all of the all of the rightward tendencies, all of the rightward shifting that was happening uh, over the past two election cycles and special elections, at least from a data perspective, seems to have disappeared because of the Dobbs decision. Mm. Abortion is bringing young Hispanic women, Catholic Hispanics overwhelmingly to a pro-choice position. Uh, it will be fascinating to see if that holds. It could be very helpful, obviously, to the Democrats um, be, because these voters are going to be driven more by gender issues as they see them as opposed to a racial or ethnic issue or even the working class framework that I was talking about and have been talking about for so long. So Latinos seem to be coming back into the Democratic fold, at least from a data perspective. The hemorrhaging where that was that loss was happening seems to have stalled out 70 days. That's what I'm watching. It's going to be definitive on probably a dozen uh, of the 20 uh, House races that are up and will determine the balance of power in Congress. Wow. That's going to be big. Uh, a lot of people's ears perked up because um, we've been talking about the shift for, for quite a while now. So that's a good one, Mike. Thanks. Uh, Theron, what do you got? I'm just watching uh, what we talked about earlier. I mean, you know, the student loan debt forgiveness uh, has been presented. And I think it's, you know, of course, to be fair, it's gotten sort of mixed reviews, but I think overwhelmingly it's been positive. And I think that, you know, the one thing that I'm really looking forward to is seeing how President Biden and his team um, and members of Congress who are Democrats will go and sort of amplify um, this historic moment um, where you had a president honor a campaign promise and sort of try to make sure that he's uh, giving, you know, young people an opportunity who uh, made the choice to go to college and to graduate. Uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, it's going to have a big impact on the Generation Z and other people um, um, who are there. So I'm, I'm rushing very closely to see how that conversation evolves and how it will play in the upcoming November elections. I agree the Dobbs decision is still preeminent. Uh, it was a game changer, but I want to see how this is going to be perceived and how it's going to be amplified. And I'm going to see uh, how higher ed uh, higher education institutions are going to really have an open conversation about lowering tuition rates, because that's a part of it as well. Um, if we can really figure out a way to make college more affordable uh, for people, I think you won't have as much student loan debt. So I'm really to see what the role um, will be as far as having a robust conversation about on uh, the high cost of college and universities across the country right now. So there's one story I'm watching that uh, that I think we should keep our eye on, which is that CNN uh, earlier this week ran a story about what they're calling a radical shift at the border. Um, now, as, as as we all know, historically, most of the, the migrants at the Southwest border have been from Mexico or the Northern Triangle countries, Northern Triangle countries being Guatemala, the Honduras uh, and El Salvador, um, and we'll remember, you know, Northern Triangle was in the news earlier when uh, when President Biden dispatched Kamala Harris to go solve that problem, and it didn't go so well for her. But this year marks the first time that there have been more migrants coming from other countries than those four, and a lot of that growth is coming from Cuba first and foremost, Venezuela, Colombia, and Nicaragua. Now, Doris Meissner, who directs U.S. immigration policy work uh, at the nonpartisan Migration Policy Institute in Washington, that this shift is going to make border enforcement much more difficult because there are limits to who can be turned back under Title 42, Title 42 being the controversial policy under which 
uh, a lot of Mexican immigrants and Northern Triangle immigrants are being uh, expelled. So the dynamic, basically the takeaway is the dynamic at the border has changed dramatically and the response from the federal government just has not adjusted to this. So I think we're going to see a lot more news about the border coming up soon. All right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about all things Georgia, Warnock, Abrams, and the pivotal role Georgia plays in the national balance of power, where can everybody find you on the internet, Theron? Um, at Twitter, at Theron Johnson, uh, Instagram, Theron L. Johnson, and then my website is Paramount Consults, C-O-N-S-U-L-T-S dot com. Mike? Find me on Twitter, at Madrid underscore Mike. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.